Tom, you just made jokes there. That was Tom jokes. You made Tom jokes. I sure did. Yeah. <laughs> it's what you do. It's who you are. That's how the Tom do. <laughs> <laughs> what does a Tom say? Ding, 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 ding. I do love that song. Yeah, obviously. I once did a, a dubstep and a country remix while I was trying to learn some open source DJ software and mix two different versions of what does the box say together. I think there should be some new out, like exit music, something. Mm, quite. We should surface that at some point. Pepper Juice is no longer the official band of the bike shed. <laughs> DJ Jazzy Tom. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, how's your week going? It's going well. I'm feeling a little bitter. I got stung by a bee or a wasp or something recently. I'm really not sure, but I was Not a murder biking. hornet though, right? Oh man, I sure, I sure hope not. <laughs> I don't think we actually have them yet, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know that they've made it here. Uh, so I'm back in Boston. I'm back in Massachusetts. Uh, so I don't know if they've made it here. That would be news to me. But I was biking and collided with, again, I don't know if it was like a bee or a wasp. I never actually saw it. But it took out like a little like, I'm sorry, people, if this is gross, but took out like a small chunk of like my skin. And it's been like a week. It's been a week and it still hurts. And it's still annoying. And so I'm very, very anti bee right now. I understand they serve a purpose. They're very important to the world i'm i'm bitter right now and i don't care <laughs> i mean that's awful and i'm i'm sorry that you experienced that i don't know because i wasn't there but i'm going to make a very assertive statement that you definitely interacted with a wasp because wasps suck and we hate them but bees we like and so we're going to defend our friends the bees because they help us make food and wasps are just terrible and obviously this was the work of a wasp that's my take yeah i like it all right i am no longer anti-bee you've helped uh pivot me to the other side it's anti-wasp that's what stung me. That's what came after me. Oh, I don't know. Maybe that wasp was in a hurry somewhere and we just collided and then that wasp has ended. <laughs> it's hard but to yeah. know why wasps do anything they do because they're just terrible. Uh, bees, on the other hand, they're great. Uh, but yeah, so that's uh, that's my, my, my little rant uh, to start us off. Uh, but in other news, things are going really well. Today, it's been a wonderful day in the sense that my client that I'm working with, we had an important test that we're going through. And it's in regards to a particular like certification process that they are earning. And it's a couple different tests and we are tested on different sections. And so today was test day one and we passed a number of those sections and we have uh, feedback for the others for where we just missed the mark a little bit and we need to make some updates. And then we also gained some insights into the other sections that we're going to test. So that's been really exciting. I'm also working with an API that is changing the data that I'm sending them. So when I send a particular value to the API, the API is like, nope, nope, you don't, you don't want this. I'm, I'm going to change it to something else. 
So to provide more of a concrete example of that data that's changing, we're working with RxNor medical codes. So we're working with an API that is storing the patient's medications. And so perhaps there's a reason that we're sending some other data that's going along with that medication. And then that API is doing its best to match it up with this standardized nomenclature that's for medications. And so they think it should be attributed to a different medical code than the one that we're sending in its place. So I imagine they are trying to do the helpful thing, but it is confusing that it's changing. And two, because we're taking a test, it needs to be precise, the like the data that we're sending that then we get it back. So that also led to some interesting discussions around, well, we don't have control over this third-party API. We can't change what they're storing at this time, but we do need to pass a test. So we came down to the human approach where we were just going to explain to the test prompter to say, this is what's happening. And uh, we are going to reach out to that team and discuss the reasoning behind it. But we think it's fine. It's not a concern for like the patient or the medication that we're storing. It just happens to be there are conflicting medical codes for the same medication. So yeah, it's already been like a, a pretty great start to the week since we're recording a bit early instead of on a Friday today. It's a Tuesday for anyone following along. Uh, but yeah, glad to hear it. Interestingly, that sounds like there's sort of a high point and maybe a not low point, but like a well-balanced sandwich of a start of the week there. Yeah, honestly, it was just tricky tracking that down because we had to go through this long data flow of where we're receiving a file and then we're parsing a value from that file and then we give it to the user and then the user can do something through our software and then we have to persist it back to this other API. So it was following all the threads to make sure that we're doing the right thing and then that's finally that we're sending it to the third party and it was a third party that was changing it. So that was more the adventure, which has now been well documented because luckily we do have access to that engineering team. So at some point we'll schedule a meeting meeting with them and reach out to them and say, hey, this is what we're seeing. Like, could you help us understand why this is being altered and if we need to do something different on our end? So yeah, it's been a good week. How about you? How's your week going? It's going well. Um, I just today landed uh, the introduction of Prettier Ruby into another of the projects that I'm working on. And already it's like a, a breath of fresh air. It was a little bit of a, a hurdle to get over uh, getting it actually into the app because basically I, I went with the NPM installation as opposed to the Ruby gem. Uh, the reason for that being I expect down the road we'll also use it for JavaScript within the same code base. And so I figured just having the default prettier installation is a better path to go even though right now we're only using the Ruby approach. But then it's sort of install it and then reformat the world and that's the start. And there's an outlier bug case that I've seen a few times with Prettier Ruby that has to do with here docs, where previously I'd seen this where it would just keep re-indenting here docs one level further every time you ran Prettier over the file, or if you're using like write on save, that it would do it every time you saved the file that you're looking at. And that was a humorous version of it. Uh, that's been fixed, but there's the particular app that I'm working on has a bunch of cases where the, I think it's a Rails method strip here doc was being used. So that's to like take off the initial indentation, but Prettier Ruby was not working with that well. And then there were other things like G subs tacked onto the end of it to like reformat the structured block of text. It turns out Rails just has less than less than tilde and then the name of the here doc. You can just use that like symbolic version and that just works well now. Actually, that must be a Ruby thing because that's like a that's like operators. So anyway, that I switched it over and then everything worked well, but it did bring up the question or the conversation within the group around the 80 character line limit, which is the default. Uh, and I went with that because that's certainly a thing that I believe in. But I don't know. What do you think in this? The, the way the one of the developers on the team phrased it uh, was, oh, I wish I had looked at this a little closer because I, I would have preferred if we had increased the line length a bit. 
And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I sort of I take the other approach, but uh, his phrasing was around like, we have giant monitors these days. Let's, uh, you know, use a little more of that real estate. But what, what do you think? What's your what's your line length thoughts? So I'm going to touch on the uh, Prettier Ruby bit that you mentioned. That's really exciting that you've added it to another project. Um, I'm excited to continue to hear more conversation how that goes. For the issue that you're mentioning, there is one currently on the project that it's related to HearDocs. I don't know if it's specific to like what you're running into, but when you were mentioning that, it rang a bell because I know that's something that Kevin has mentioned and I think we've looked at before when we're going through some of the issues. So if you have some spare time and want to dive into Prettier Ruby, come on over, friend. <laughs> I appreciate the invite. Uh, in my case, it was much easier to just rewrite the code <laughs> and then run with that. That's fair. It, it was an interesting case where I feel like the semantics of the code were complex enough that I was like, I get it, Prettier. I see why this is complicated for you. Why don't I simplify the code? Still have the same, essentially, like logic in the app. So nothing changed from that perspective. But yeah, the line length thing was interesting, because especially as I was thinking about recording the bike shed today, I was like, this is a perfect bike shed topic. What color is your line length? That's such a good bike shed topic. I haven't really thought about the strong feelings. I do get aggravated when I'm because I'm a Vim user and I'm used to that line length and also because I split a lot. of So even though I have a larger screen, I will often split my screen. So even though I have a large display real estate to use, I'm not using that full real estate just to look at lines of code. I'm also using it to watch other processes, run tests, things like that, look at docs. So I have noticed that it is frustrating for me. And every now and then I'll go into files and I have to fight the urge to go ahead and just reformat that file so that everything fits nicely within the line length that I'm used to, just because then it makes it easier for me to read. So I guess I lean on the strong opinion of like, if it helps others to make it shorter, and then if it's easy for people to follow that line length, I feel like that's where it gets controversial is because people don't want to have to change their habits. So if we're going to enforce a rule of like 80 line length, then there needs to be an easy way that they don't have to think about it. And it's just done for them. So then it's something that we can't argue about internally. But yeah, I'm I'm in favor of it just because I don't know, the the we have big dis- monitors doesn't really jive for me because that's true. But I split it up. And also that feels kind of like a works on my machine mentality, because then if I am working on a laptop or I don't have a monitor to use, then I don't have that same size real estate. So that's where I'm at. How about you? Yeah, essentially the same. Unsurprisingly, we have yet to find our disagreement fight topic. I do like the way you phrase that, though, of you lean towards the strong opinion. (laughs) You're like hedging that you feel very strongly about this, it turns out. Yeah, I I think same for me, though. I like to split my screen or like split within Vim. So all of the tests and the implementation next to each other, which I think that might be more common in the Ruby community than in other communities, testing being so much of the culture. But then also there are other files, like I have the model and the controller open next to each other, things like that. So I, I feel like that must exist in other communities. But like when I'm writing JavaScript, I feel like I do less of that or frankly, any other language. So there could be some community aspects to it. But yeah, I definitely, I find there being value to it. And especially when there's an auto formatter that's just going to do it for me, I'm all the more sold on it. And uh, it does end up with some weird ones, though, especially with the optional parens in Ruby. Prettier Ruby makes some choices about how to indent that that wouldn't be my natural inclination, but are fine because the thing that I care about most is an auto formatter. So anyway, overall, it has been a great experience. I am very happy to have it on the project. But yeah, I figured we could get pedantic about line lengths for a minute, live up to the name of the show. 
that's awesome. I'm really not the pedantic park, but that's awesome about the using Pretty Ruby because I'm I'm a bit jealous. I haven't gotten to use it on a project yet, and I need to just implement it somewhere so I get to to really embrace it and use it. Wait, maybe that's not true. Maybe I did use it like a while back, but since getting to work on it a little bit further in the code base with Kevin, then I haven't really used it on a project. So yeah, I'm a little jealous. I'll have to find a project to implement it on. All right, so pivoting a little bit, uh, something that I know you and I are excited about, uh, we're going to do a special episode where we have a listener mailbag rodeo extraordinaire, which is essentially our very fancy term for we're going to round up the listener questions that we've had in a queue for a while that we haven't gotten to. Thank you again so much for sending these questions in. We do see them, uh, but sometimes it just takes us a while to get to them because apparently, Chris, you and I have lots of things to say. Apparently. (laughs) So we're going to uh, go through some of these listener questions and answer them on air. So, all right, uh, question one, I'll kick us off and then you can respond to it first. This question comes from Miguel and Miguel writes, hi, Steph and Chris. First, love the pod. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Miguel. I have a couple of questions. For context, I want to give freelancing a shot for a couple of months, but I soon started seeing a couple of challenges I was not expecting. So first, should I charge per project or per hour? I'm sure you can relate the bigger a project is, the fuzzier setting an accurate estimate becomes. Both of you said in a recent episode that you were against estimating a whole project, and I can definitely see why and agree with that. But also, if I charge per hour, how can I give the client the confidence I'm going to deliver actual usable software at the end of the agreed hours and not linger for weeks and end up asking for way more than the client initially had in mind? So Miguel has a second question, but I'm going to pause there because that's already a, a meaty enough topic that we can dive into, which this question is perfect since you've been diving into freelancing recently. So Chris, how do you charge? Do you charge per project per hour? Uh, yes. I. When this question first came in, I had not begun freelancing, but now I have. Uh, so I've been doing that for now almost five months, and I am charging hourly at this point, but with some conversations around expected timeline in terms of longevity with the company, so how long they expect to continue paying me per hour. And I think Miguel touched on, I think, some of the core ideas But I definitely, definitely would avoid at all costs doing sort of fixed bid projects estimation. So saying like, yeah, that app that you want built is $5,000 because there's just a ton of risk inherent in that. Software development is, for better or for worse, a process of discovery a lot of times. What do users actually care about? What do they want? In a lot of cases, you know, connecting a form to a database can be pretty easy and repeatable, but that's not necessarily the hard part. And requirements change and the world changes. So the larger a thing is, the less likely I would be to even come close to any sort of fixed bid. But I think there's also some stuff nested in this question about how do you give confidence to the client that you're going to deliver something usable? And I think that's so core to the entire ThoughtBot ethos of regular continuous conversation, always be trying to deliver that minimum viable thing, get it out there in front of people. So it's not some deadline that's three months out in the future, but it's at the end of this week, can we have a meaningful piece of software out there in the world? So yeah, those are some initial thoughts, but what do you think? So I lean towards the same side, having not done freelancing myself, but I lean towards that same answer of billing per hour, because like you said, there's a lot of risk if you're trying to do like a a one size budget for a particular project and you're not sure how it goes. My experience is one from what I've been hearing with you and how ThoughtBot approaches it, but also my brother is a developer and will often do freelancing work on his free time. And one of the things that I've asked him about is I'm like, how do you do this? I'm very intrigued. Like, how do you know what to bill? And he often does do the, I'm going to charge you a set amount for this. But he is also 
sharpened his skill to the point that he's very confident that he knows that if you want this particular package, then it's going to cost this much because he knows how many hours it's going to take. So if he's building more of like a static site and you want to pay this much, then he knows exactly what templates he's going to pull from and he gives the client information or access to those templates to make a decision. And then if the client says, well, I'd really like to have more of a customized template, it's like, okay, that's that's great. We can talk about that, but that is going to then change the pricing that we're going to offer. So that's the only time I've really seen that work is where you are just very confident and you know the process and then how many hours it's going to take you to build that and then you can bundle it up into one price. I really like what you said a moment ago because then there is that important balance between if you're going to bill per hour, but how do you give confidence that you're going to then get something meaningful done and something meaningful shipped? And I think that's one of the great things that ThoughtBot does is where we don't just tell a client what we can or can't do, but we collaborate to say like, this is your budget. This is how much you want to spend. Here's our best estimate that we have and how we're going to work on these features. We're also going to prioritize them. So if we're wrong about how long a feature takes, we know that we are working on the most important ones first. So I think that's also a really important part to discuss and to then build that confidence with the customer that you're going to be in clear communication as to what's being worked on and then have maybe daily updates as to when you think that feature is going to be shipped or that project will be shipped. All right. So moving on to Miguel's second question, how much should I charge? Uh, I've I've also wondered this too. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, you too. <laughs> Uh, So Miguel wrote that I live in Mexico where wages and cost of living are lower than in the US. If a potential client is from Mexico, charging, for example, $20 an hour seems like a good deal. But if a potential client is from the US, then I suddenly feel like I'm undercharging. And charging more for a client here in Mexico feels abusive since I know it's a bigger chunk of their total income, even if it's the same amount of money. Is it acceptable to charge different rates based on the country of residence of the client? Am I a terrible person for considering this? Any advice you had to figure this out would be greatly appreciated. Best, Miguel. Yeah, so the like what to charge question is a hard one on its own. But then when you get into geo arbitrage and crossing international borders, then it becomes all the more complex. I think there's a moralistic bent to the question of like, is Miguel a bad person if he considers having two different price sheets? I don't think so. I think that is a perfectly reasonable thing. I think, interestingly, there's a a version of the story where the best case for you as a freelance developer is selling on value. So it's not my labor costs $50 an hour or whatever that number happens to be. It's I'm going to allow you, other company, to then take the thing that I've built and ideally make a ton of money on top of it. And so there's this back and forth an ebb and flow of that conversation of how much value do they think they're going to be able to extract from the work that you're doing and how much, you know, how much of that should go to you. And the economics in the U.S. are just very different. And so presumably the organization that you're working for in the U.S. is actually going to be able to make more money off of the thing that you're doing. So if it's a restaurant website, that restaurant is going to make more money by virtue of people coming to that restaurant because it's in the United States and prices and inflation and everything just changes that dynamic. But I think that sort of holds true broadly. So yeah, I think figuring out what to charge is a very difficult thing. But as to the specifics of sort of crossing that international boundary, I think feel free to experiment and find numbers that make sense for everyone. But yeah, what do you think, Steph? My thoughts are fairly succinct because I don't have 
direct exposure to this and having to work through that process. And I think very much what you said, where it sort of respects the market, which wherever you are is perfectly fine to have different rates for the different areas and that your clients reside because their opportunities are also different. And the fact that if they're going to hire someone, so if someone, a company in New York is hiring a developer in New York, they're going to charge that rate. So just because you're based somewhere else, I think you can charge the same rate for where that company resides. Because and if they were hiring someone locally, that's how much they would pay as well. So I would be in favor of just having different prices and sort of gauge them based on the market as to what your competition is charging for freelancing. I had some other thoughts as we were talking about rates and then also circling back to the if you're billing per hour versus per project. And you can correct me if you think this is different, but my impression is that most freelancers do charge per hour. So that's a nicety in the sense that that's probably the norm that it's fairly easy to have that conversation. Has that been your experience? Or do you find that most customers are expecting like a set price per feature per app? Uh, Just about every conversation I've had, which admittedly is not that many since I started on this little adventure, but they are all the question at hand is what's your hourly rate? And so even I would love to sort of push to day rate or week rate to change the sort of shape of it. It's not necessarily how I'm working right now. I I am trying to structure in days, but not necessarily weeks because I'm working for two different clients. But yeah, it's definitely a per hour or per unit of time sort of thing. And I've not seen anything to the contrary. I'm sure it happens. And I think it happens more so in other industries. But the the tech world, you know, web development seems to be pretty consolidated on that. Okay, cool. Thanks. And I think the complication or the argument for billing for per hour is that you could, if you build per project, you could miss out on billable hours. So if you promised a project and you promised it for a certain amount of money, but then it takes up more time, then if you'd build by hours, then perhaps you could have gotten more money for that project. But then there is a drawback if you're billing per hour, because then what if, frankly, you're really good at what you do? And just because you have honed this skill to the fact that it only takes you an hour or two, now your work has been devalued in that sense because you're charging per hour. So I have seen some folks struggle with that as well and deciding if they should charge for like their work that they're creating versus necessarily how long it took them to get there. Yeah, I think the double-edged sword that you're highlighting there is very much true and in my experience, the the version that I like of the story is one where we try and get as close to our incentives being aligned as possible. And so the hourly rate allows us to sort of have this ongoing conversation and negotiation about the work at hand and about you know what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. Can we de-scope features, et cetera, and make sure that we're all moving towards the same thing? Whereas, like you said, if you do project-based pricing and you're super quick, then you get to take extra money off the table. And that's great. But does that now incentivize you to cut corners or do the work differently uh, and vice versa? Like you said, if there keep being little scope creeps and suddenly the $5,000 project takes you billable hours of 7,500, now do you have to go back and rehab that negotiation? I prefer, or I found it to be beneficial to have that conversation as more of an ongoing thing, but it definitely, there are ways in which the per project thing can work out better or worse for individuals. And I, I sort of like that average up the middle, um, but it's definitely, you know, there are different ways of thinking about it. But I do actually want to touch a little bit more on the idea of what to charge. So like more specifically, say you're in a given market and you're working within that and you want to decide like what will your hourly rate be? Um, I've had to go through this a few times now. And so there's a couple of things that have been beneficial to me, at least. So I figure it's worth mentioning. One is, this is a really hard question to answer. And so just 
noticing that and then trying to find ways to give yourself more information. So initially, if you're like, I, I, I have literally no idea. Is there anyone in your network that you can reach out to? Are there any people that you trust, any friends that do similar work? any people on the internet, that sort of thing that you might feel comfortable reaching out and actually having that honest conversation of, you know, what's your rate look like? If you don't have folks in your network that you can reach out to directly, then another option is to look at, uh, there are a handful of marketplaces out there. So I want to say Upwork and TopTal and a few others like that, where freelancers can actually go in and, and sort of list themselves on these sites. And then folks that need freelance help can go there and find people. And so you can scan through and in a lot of cases actually see what various hourly rates look like. And so you'll get to see sort of a range and decide sort of where you might feel like you fall in that range, but it can give you some additional information to try and at least make an initial guess at that. And then from there, at some point, you just got to pick a number and go with it. And I would say be ready to have a negotiation, have a conversation, try as best as possible to not let it feel personal. Uh, if someone you know comes back at you and says, whoa, whoa, not that rate, that's too high. That's not necessarily an indictment of you. That's a that's them stating how they value this exchange. And you're fully welcome to come back and say, no, definitely that number or a higher number. Well, probably not a higher number. That's not how negotiation typically works. But but being ready to have that conversation. And I think there are a couple characteristics that can change things. For instance, your given hourly rate may be one thing, but if a client commits to three months worth of work, 40 hours a week, then maybe there's room to negotiate a little bit because you now have consistent work for a period of time. Whereas any downtime in your schedule, if you're trying to actually you know, think about an annual salary, uh, any downtime is going to significantly reduce your actual effective rate throughout the year. So there's different ways in which you can slice it in different ways that you can have that negotiation without necessarily actually compromising on the rate. But there's also times like maybe you're excited about the work. Maybe the team that you get to work with is really interesting and that's something that's worthwhile to you. But yeah, at some point, you just got to go out there and pick some numbers and run with them and, and see how it goes. I say, as someone who did this recently, it was an adventure. I am curious. So when you settled on that number, you've gotten to that point where you have mm -hmm. negotiations with a client and you've gotten your first client. Hooray. Uh, how did you handle billing? What does that look like? Is that uh, upfront? Is it sort of like incrementally per week? How do you handle that transaction? At this point, I'm doing weekly invoicing. So I sum up the hours and roughly describe the work that I did and invoicing weekly. And then the payment terms between the two clients that I've worked with have been different. Uh, one was essentially on a rolling basis and the other was lumped into the next month. So like a net 30 kind of thing or um, different terms like that. And that's something that can be in a contract and can be specified up front. I wasn't necessarily too concerned with it. So I didn't push particularly hard on it. But um, yeah, weekly invoices. I found a template on the internet for how to write an invoice. And then I filled it in and then I sent it to people. But it's worked. And that thankfully, that aspect, the like contract negotiation, invoicing, etc., has been relatively minimal for me. It's not something that I want to specialize in or be much better at. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed, one word, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. 
Thank you again to Scout APM for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. But yeah, I think that uh, rounds out that question. Thank you again to Miguel for sending that one in. Uh, But moving on to our next question, uh, this one is about property-based testing, and it reads, Hi, Steph and Chris. My name is Harry Goldstein, and I'm a huge fan of The Bike Shed. Oh, thanks, Harry. Uh, I've listened to every episode, and I'm constantly impressed with the levels of professionalism and insight that you bring to the show every week. First, I'd really like to thank the two of you, Tom, and everyone at ThoughtBot who makes this show possible. Listening to the podcast has turned my half-hour commute into a fun and educational experience. Uh, Harry, thank you so much for the kind words. I promise we didn't uh, cajole him into saying those, but I don't know if your commute is still the same length these days, but happy to provide uh, some tech talk and nonsense for you to enjoy. Uh, So getting back to his question. Second, my question. Have you done any work with property-based testing? There are libraries for it in most modern languages. Haskell and Rust have QuickCheck. Python has Hypothesis. Ruby has Rantly, it would seem. Not actually sure about that one. Uh, It has a question mark in the question. I don't know if we wrote that or Harry did, but uh, JavaScript has JS Verify. And I would love to know what you think of it, especially because of ThoughtBot's ethos around testing and TDD. For some background, I'm a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania, and my research is partly focused on software testing tools. Obviously, I'm excited about the work that I'm doing, but I'd love to hear people in the industry who are more excited about it as well. So, Steph, thoughts, property-based testing. What do you think? I think that um, I haven't done that before. I haven't done property-based testing, at least not that I'm familiar with in those terms. Uh, So like Ruby, Rantley, that's something I haven't heard of before. JS Verify, those are all new terms for me. So I'm curious, is this something that you've done that you could walk us through? And then I can provide some thoughts afterwards. I think I have like very briefly touched on QuickCheck when I was working with Haskell some number of years ago, just because the Haskell community seems more into this style of work than other communities that I've worked with. But I've not actually used it in anger in any real way. Uh, I am super excited about it, though. I really think it's a useful additional way to constrain a system. And particularly, like we talk occasionally about testing and types. And I think we both share the idea that like when possible, we like to express things in the type system because it's this more complete, more machine readable version of those constraints. And actually, we find that to be a nice expressive design layer. And similarly, I think these sort of property-based testing, I think I've heard of it referred to as fuzz testing before, uh, or a handful of other names like that, but it's it allows you to write invariants like this given function should never return a negative number. So given any possible input, it should never return a negative number. And so you can write that type of assertion, and then the property testing system will generate a wide range of random inputs within a certain thing. So you say like any integer can come in and the result should never be negative. And then the system will fuzz around, generate some random noise and ensure that that's true. And if it does find a case that falls out of that, like it turns out for zero, if you put zero in, then you get a negative number back. Oh no, now we need to update our code to fix that. Um, But it's a really interesting way to not really have to write tests, but get a ton of additional constraints and correctness out of our systems. So this sounds a little familiar in Ruby, like if we're testing a particular um, attribute, if we're using the RSpec validations, like if we're saying that we expect an age to like always be within this range and that type of testing. But it sounds like this is at a grander scale with the property testing where then we can test more of that sort of like logic, but it's not necessarily constrained to that where, like you said, we always want to make sure we have a positive number regardless of what the user gives us. Does that sound close? Uh, I think so. I think that's probably the closest thing that in the Ruby world we get to it. Although I think in that case, that is more about non-determinism in the output in the like implementation code. 
And with property-based testing, it's about throwing a bunch of inputs into a given system under test and then ensuring that all outputs fall within a certain range or expected sort of thing. And it's like QA, but in an automated repeatable fashion. And that to me is really interesting. Like I expect this to never be negative. I expect the string to always have a non-zero length. I expect, you know, any number of invariants like that. And you can start to constrain your system. I struggle a little bit in the Ruby world thinking about how I would actually use this because it's just not part of my workflow. But I know, or at least I've anecdotally heard that like the Haskell community loves quick check. It is a great way to add, in addition to the type system that they have, which is very powerful and expressive, quick check is another layer that is a common part of how Haskell folks work. I think. I don't actually know. I don't work in Haskell ever. Uh, but that's my sense. Yeah, it sounds like uh, something that I'd be interested in finding because it seems like one of those things that's really great to have in your back pocket where there's going to be a situation that's going to come up and it's going to be like, oh, this would be perfect for this type of testing. So I'm I'm really intrigued and um, kind of surprised that I haven't used it before. This is not really related, but this is just where my brain went and thinking about this type of testing is there's one thing that I've seen a particular client use that when they're testing, they always change like the time of which the tests are running. So that way you don't have, if you're running each night and then you can have test failures, but they're doing that all throughout the day where they're setting the, the time to a bunch of different time zones and also running the tests through that format to then make sure that it works for anyone in the world and that there aren't any like hidden time bugs. Uh, so I've really appreciated that, although that's pretty different. But yeah, I'm I'm intrigued. That actually sounds super similar to me. Like it's changing oh. the inputs where the current time is one of the inputs and it's adding random noise to that input. And so like you run it right now and it's February 29th. Turns out that might find a bug or it's 1159. I've definitely had plenty of test suites where I, for some reason, have to finish up work at 7 p.m. And suddenly the tests start failing. I'm like, ah, come on, really? And so actually adding that noise on the front and that that sounds like it's super related to this, but it's it's like a level higher because in that case, the current time is a global sort of contextual thing. Okay, cool. Then yeah, that seems really useful. I really like that. But I'm afraid I don't have any other experience uh, for Harry, other than to say that I am excited. So if that was his goal, then kudos. <laughs> You've gotten me intrigued into looking into more property testing. And if I can think, I think there was a particular Ruby gem that that client was using where they were changing the UTC offset each time the tests were running. So I can share that in the show notes if I can find it. So thank you, Harry, for sending that question in. And for anyone else who'd like to send us a question, we really enjoy getting your questions. And then I promise we will have more of these mailbag rodeo roundups. Uh, so if you'd like to send a question, you can reach out to us on Twitter. And then you can also send us a question via email at hosts at bikeshed.fm. All right. So moving on to our final question for today, we have a question that's related to time tracking. So this question comes from a ThoughtBotter. It comes from Edward Lovell here in the Boston office. And Edward asks a question. Someone just asked a good question in our Slack channel about how to handle meetings during a client Friday. It made me think about how you both track time in general, and especially Chris, now that he's doing some independent consulting work. Do you frame it around a set number of hours in the day, amount of work delivered, something more subjective? And then he wrote, consider this a bike shed question submission. So, hey, Edward, thank you for the question. Uh, Chris, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Uh, well, first, thanks, Edward, for sending that in. Uh, always nice to hear from you. Yeah, I think it is an interesting question. 
I have gotten a little more specific with my time tracking as I started the freelancing thing, and then I've slowly been backing that off. I think there was a really useful aspect of the conversation at ThoughtBot around sustainable pace and around what it means to actually do meaningful work. And I've become extremely conscious of days where I might not be at my best and I might not be delivering, say, as much value as a day that I'm perfectly caffeinated. I've slept eight solid hours and you know all of those sort of things. Um, but I'm trying to get a little bit better with that. I want to make sure that I'm delivering value consistently to my clients. And so I do focus on that. I try really hard to make sure I'm not getting stuck on anything. I'm not spending too long on anything that I'm having the conversations about negotiating. You know, what is a priority? I feel like this thing that I'm working on is ballooned in size and it's taking two days when we thought it would take two hours. Just wanted to check in. Is this still a thing we want to keep on working on? To the particular question of Friday meeting time, I think I would expand my workday a little bit to accommodate that. Because at the end of the day, to a certain degree, we are selling hours, but we're also selling the work that we're accomplishing in that. And so that's a sort of a delicate line. And it's one that I've gone back and forth on. But those are perhaps some rambly initially thoughts. But I'm, I'm interested to hear where you're coming in on this stuff. Yeah, thank you, Edward, for sending this question, because honestly, it's pretty challenging to figure out how to manage when you have competing priorities. And then how do you manage like billing, like say a full client day, but then if you have some other thought bot activities that you'd like to be engaged in as well. And the approach that I have taken is I'm trying to be brutally honest with myself as to looking through my schedule, what activities do I have lined up for this day? And specifically, if it's a client day, and to give a concrete example, if I have like three ThoughtBot related events, but yet I also want to bill a full client day, then I'm going to line up the hours and see how much time I think those ThoughtBot activities are going to take. And then I will have to cut some of them, frankly, because I do want to give the majority of my energy and my time to the client if that's the day that I'm billing on. And then if I have a little bit of like, say, like an hour that I can invest in ThoughtBot that day, I feel comfortable doing that. I do strive more for the value that I'm delivering to the client versus number of hours. So as I'm looking at my calendar and thinking about what am I going to achieve for the client today? What value am I going to deliver? I'm going to look at Trello tickets or if there are PRs that I can review, if there's something that needs to get deployed. So I'm going to be looking in terms of what can I accomplish today with the time that I have? So that way I'm not looking specifically as like, did I just bank eight hours or did I just say, you know, that I'm going to do eight hours for today or seven hours. So that's been my approach. It's been going well. It's been nice because it's also forced me to reach out to folks and say, I can't attend this meeting. Is there a way that we could do this asynchronously? So then I can still be part of the conversation. We also have our internal ThoughtBot monthly meetings, which I'm always sad to miss those. But then it's encouraged me to reach out and say, hey, could we record this? So then I could watch it some other time over lunch. Or if someone would kindly take some notes in case there's something really important that I need to hear about, but I can't attend because I need to be with my client today. So in some ways, it's been really nice to force some additional constraints and encourage me to to collect some of that stuff that I would miss in a different form. And I think it's helped other people as well, because if this is something that like you, Edward, you're struggling with and something that I'm struggling with, then there's a good sign other people are too. So by moving collectively to a place that we can focus on the main priority for the day and find ways to like have those other conversations elsewhere or other days will also help other people or have like recordings for meetings. That's uh that's been pretty much my spiel. I will say I'm not great at it yet. Uh, there's days that I definitely like I just start my client day earlier. So that way, like if there's something I really want to do, that's a competing priority. I just start working a little earlier to make sure that then I can give my full time to the client, but then also squeeze in the stuff that I really want to do as well. 
But then today is a really good example. Like we're recording on a Tuesday and we do set these towards the end of the day. So then today I will find ways to make sure that I'm still giving my full day to the client and by full day, like achieving those goals that I had in mind. So then we can record today. So yeah, it's just for me, it's all about being very honest with myself as to what I can accomplish in a day and then where I'm giving my time. I do wish there was more of like a formula. Like that is the nice thing of like tracking hours because then you can say like, oh, I invested this many hours and so then I can feel good about that. But I found that just doesn't work for my personality that it helps to track the hours to then help remind myself how many hours I've given to a particular task, but it's not how I can judge my performance. So yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a good formula other than honestly, I draw out my calendar each day, like I'll sit there in the morning or the night before and I'll make a, a note of like, here's my upcoming day. And here's how every half hour or hour is filled. So then I'm very aware of like what's coming up. You sound busy. <laughs> Popular. It does sound <laughs> Just some days. Some days are certainly challenging and where we are trying to balance. It is unique, like being part of like ThoughtBot and then also being a consultant, like that can be challenging. And it's it's a good challenge in my mind because it's really teaching me a lot of these time management skills and how I determine if I've delivered enough value to others. But yeah, it, it certainly can be one of the challenges of being at ThoughtBot is understanding that you do have sort of like these split alliances of like who you're contributing to that day. I think that all makes sense in the way you're framing of you know wanting to deliver value and wanting to be honest about it. And so like for me, there were definitely days where I did not bill a full day because I had to recognize that that, that was just the reality of it. And so I'll reduce the hours that I'm you know invoicing for. It's less of a case now because I have fewer other things competing. But I think looking at ThoughtBot, there's so much value in the conversations that happen in the knowledge sharing and all of that. Like when a ThoughtBot developer is working on a project, it's not just that individual's hours that are part of the value that's being delivered, but it's access to that entire network to the Friday conversations where everyone is leveling up. And so there's there's a delicate line of there's tons of value for clients in Friday time. Like that is not just a thing for thought potters to have fun. That is a way to invest in the skill set and the knowledge and the happiness, frankly, but you know, various other aspects that directly impacts the work that we're all able to do for clients. And uh, frankly, I desperately miss Friday time, but here we are. I had a relevant conversation with someone recently that was along the lines of what you were just touching on. And because we were going through a couple of weeks of where we were actually not getting Friday time, and so we are doing what ThoughtBot calls banking that investment day for a future day so we don't lose it, but we were choosing to bill five days for a couple of weeks. And so folks that were used to getting that Friday time felt like it was building up some of the stuff that they wanted to work on and internal ThoughtBot projects they didn't have time to push along. So we've had conversations around if there's a particular blog post or something that's very relevant to the skill set that you need to work with your client, in my mind, that's still okay to dedicate some time to that blog post. I would be strict and not dedicate much time to it. So it's still being very much focused on the client work instead. But if you were taking like 30 minutes or something to then push along that blog post, I would not then deduct that as in like that's 30 minutes I need to make up elsewhere. Because I mean, as employees at all companies, like we're going to take some time during our day to push along other things that then still contribute to who we are at the company and the contributions that we'll make. So Edward, thank you so much for sending in this question. It's a really good one, something that I struggle with, but I feel like I'm making some progress in. I hope we provided some valuable answers and tips for you as well. And on that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. 
If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.